The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin. Hello and welcome to the edition. The Spectator's look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, as the EU threatens a vaccine export ban, we look at whether this is a problem caused by the EU leadership. Plus, will a new Instagram account for teenage girls that allows them to report sexual assault be the answer to the battle of the sexes? And finally, what was it like to be one of the last children to leave the British Raj? First up, after a slow start to its vaccine rollout, the European Union is now threatening to block jabs ordered by Britain from leaving the continent. In this week's cover piece, Matthew Lynn says their vaccine meltdown could wipe out a generation of European leaders. To explain, Matthew joins me now, together with Andrea Donis, a Labour peer and chair of the European Movement. Matthew, in your cover story this week, you look at what you call Europe's vaccine meltdown. Can you update listeners on what the latest developments have been? Uh, yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's just moving, been moving very, very fast, uh, as I'm sure people, you know, who've been following the story know, you know, there's just been several points to make about it, actually. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that's very clear about what's happening in Europe is just this constant drama around vaccines, which I think has been very damaging. I mean, if you compare it to this country, but not particularly this country, the United States, which has obviously done pretty well, some other countries around the world have kind of got ahead of the curve. It should be a relatively straightforward process. Obviously, there are different vaccines and they have different qualities, have different strengths and weaknesses and availabilities. But they're rolling out vaccines as quickly as possible. And I think, you know, one of the things we've seen in Europe is just this constant kind of drama about which vaccines have been having, different regulatory systems, suspending vaccines, different age groups. And then, of course, you know, the lack of supply and threats of export controls and bans and factories being raided in Italy. So we're going, you know, that's going on and they're, they're going to resolve all of that hopefully over the next couple of days at the summit they're having. But I think what I was looking at in the piece I did this week for the magazine was just the wider implications of that, that it's actually a bit more than just the vaccine, although the vaccine in itself is very important because that's the best way of getting out of this whole of this whole crisis. But looking a bit beyond that, and uh, you know, the first question which which I started with was, you know, why are they panicking so much? You know, why are they in such a funk? Because it doesn't seem to make much sense. I mean, they're going to get the vaccines eventually. They were obviously made. I think everyone agrees. Even President Macron said today that they'd made a bit of a hash of the whole procurement program, and they hadn't done the best job in the world. They will get there eventually. You know, it seems extraordinary that they're threatening to see, effectively seize factories take control of production, put in place export bans and controls. You know, it's going to be terrible for investment. You know, if you unpack it, I think they have a huge, huge problem over there. Obviously, they start off with a health crisis because you know, if you don't vaccinate, as we've seen in this country, and as we're seeing now in the United States, when you vaccinate people, A, they don't get sick in the same numbers, they don't, you don't fill up the hospitals, but it seems to bring the rate of infection under control. We don't know that for certain, but it's certainly looking that way. So the virus, you know, the numbers in the virus is, is spreading very rapidly. It's hitting an unvaccinated population in Europe. So there's a health crisis, you know, that's the most important thing. It's going to spill over, I think, into an economic crisis. Uh, but, you know, fairly obviously, because economies are going to remain locked down uh, for a lot longer, that's going to hit the economy, that's going to escalate debt. I think one thing people haven't noticed yet, but will notice soon, it's one thing when, you know, the whole world is borrowing money like crazy, uh, because everyone's locked down. You know, then the, you know, the capital markets don't notice that so much. But what you're going to have in the Eurozone, and they're starting to pick up on this, 
is that you know Europe's going to be locked down longer than you know other major economies around the world because they they haven't managed to get the virus under control. So you're going to see an economic impact, and you're going to see that particularly in the debt markets. And then finally, you're going to see a lot of political fallout from it. I think that's inevitable. I mean, it's just in some ways, it's just bad luck that they're going into an election season. You know, in the United States, they've just been through an election and, and the incumbent lost his, you know, lost the presidency. Obviously, in this country, we had an election of three weeks before the virus took off. So we have a fairly stable government. But obviously, in Europe, you're going through a period of political change. So obviously, you have federal elections coming up uh, in Germany in September, uh, where it looks you know, increasingly likely that the CDU will lose power after a long time. President Macron's coming up for election re-election next year. It's you know he's, he hasn't got very long to get to grips with the situation. In Italy, you have an unelected technocrat who's been installed as prime minister. But there's not much point in having an unelected technocrat as prime minister if he can't do stuff like get vaccines into people's arms. So I think they're going to have an escalating political crisis. So I think that's what that's what's kind of coming together and why they're in such a panic at this particular moment about vaccines and, and they're kind of lashing out because all of these problems are unfolding before them. Andrew, you're, of course, known for being a very high-profile supporter of the EU. What, what have you made of the EU's vaccine rollout? Well, the, the vaccine crisis has been uh, very serious. And uh, I've read Matthew's piece, and I basically agree with the issues he raises about leadership in Europe. The leadership has been poor. In an article, if I'm allowed to mention it, I've written for a rival publication, Prospect magazine. Indeed, people I hope can read both, <laughs> Spectator and Prospect. Really? I've argued that uh, Ursula von der Leyen is the Theresa May of Brussels. There's a, a chronic leadership problem, just as the EU was very well led during the, the Brexit crisis, where they basically ran rings around British negotiators in Michel Barnier and Donald Tusk in the case of uh, Ursula von der Leyen, they haven't been either able to put in place uh, a procurement regime, which has been adequate to uh, European requirements. They didn't do what Britain did at the beginning, which was to treat this as a war situation. And in a war situation, you do whatever it takes to commandeer supplies, put in place the contracts and pay whatever is required. The EU was too risk averse in doing that, which is why it was behind the curve in procuring the vaccines. It was probably also a mistake for the European Commission itself to seek to turn itself into a health union in the middle of a crisis. Uh, It would have been much better, I think, to have left that to the member states to have uh, have done. And then, of course, uh, that was worsened by, this is a sort of classic French and German massive... um, uh, health risk scare that then took place about the efficacy of vaccines, which very, very foolishly President Macron and Chancellor Merkel played into by raising questions as to whether AstraZeneca was going to be effective. So this clearly hasn't been a good leadership on Europe's part. And Matthew is absolutely right that they're therefore behind the curve in terms of uh, the rate of vaccination. However, where I do disagree with him is I wouldn't extrapolate from that into thinking that there's going to be an unfolding and lengthening European crisis necessarily. The answer to poor leadership is good leadership. Uh, there's nothing in the health systems of France, Germany and Italy that means that they can't roll out a vaccine fast. Their people are every bit as determined to get healthy and stay safe as ours. There isn't a congenital issue about vaccine denial, which is going to cause them difficulties. And what I see happening, looking at the pattern of events, you know, these elections, which Matthew referred to, they'll, they'll produce probably perfectly stable governments. He refers in his article to the new Green leader in Germany, who is basically a, a pretty well conventional 
Christian stroke social democrat who happens to have a slightly green tinge. Uh, he's uh, absolutely in the mainstream of European politics. Germany isn't, isn't lurching to an extreme. Indeed, it's very telling that the main beneficiary of uh, this crisis in Germany hasn't been the extremes. It hasn't been the AFD. It's been the mainstream. The two victors in the German regional elections last week were the Greens in one state and the SPD, which had been written off before, in another state. So it looks as if you could have a fairly stable centre-left as opposed to a centre-right government. And I would have thought that if the choices between President Macron and Marine Le Pen in France, that Macron will get back easily in the event, despite dramas, which you always get in elections. So I don't see that there's a systemic problem in Europe. There's a temporary leadership problem, which has led to a poor response to the vaccine that will need to be sorted out. Europe, in my view, both the the member states and the European Commission itself are are perfectly capable of sorting it out, and that will happen. So I think this tinge of triumphalism, which I know the spectator would love to indulge in, because it always sees the European Union as on the verge of disintegration, which creeps into the end of Matthew's piece, I simply think is wishful thinking. Europe will recover from this. We, in Britain, of course, have a massive interest in Europe recovering from it. We are not going to have a a, a big economic resurgence after this of our principal market, the destination of half our goods continues in a deep recession. And the good news of this week is that both Boris Johnson and Macron and Merkel appear to have agreed on this. What happened on Wednesday, my understanding of it, is that they have drawn back from any question of there being an export ban on AstraZeneca vaccines, and they are now going to seek to resolve this together. That's absolutely the right thing to do. We have a massive shared interest. Britain will not revive strongly with a European economy that is in continuing uh, recession. And I think that, uh, to quote Mark Twain, rumours of the death of the European Union as at every stage in the last 30 years when British Eurosceptics have have pronounced that the EU is about to die are greatly exaggerated. (laughs) Can I ask you, do you think the vaccine rollout would have been different for both Britain and the EU if Britain was still in the EU? Well, if Ursula von der Leyen had been president of the Commission, I don't think so. I think what would have happened is that we would have done a classic British thing, which we did in these situations in the EU, which is we would have opted out. We would have opted out both of the procurements, which we were able to do under European law, and we would have opted out too of the uh, validation process for the vaccines. We would have uh, validated the uh, AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccine much faster than the EU did, and we would have signed our own independent procurement agreements. That's what, what I think would have happened. I think also what would have happened, interestingly, is in that event, I think probably several other EU states might have done the same. We would have given them, as it often happens in these cases of, as it were, what, what political scientists call competitive federalism, where you have constituent states that seek to compete Uh, against each other for better outcomes. I think probably, you know, I don't know, a third of EU states might have gone with us in terms of procurement. And I think the effects of that actually, ironically, would have been to have put the European Commission on its mettle. And I think they would have resolved their issues much faster too. So I actually think if we'd been in the EU, the result would would have been roughly the same for Britain, better for Europe, and the net effect for both Britain and the EU at large would have been beneficial. So I don't think it's been beneficial to either us or them, the whole Brexit crisis at all. Matthew, Ursula von der Leyen clearly has questions to answer her. Do you think she 
will be held accountable for any of this? Probably not. No, I mean it's one of the, it's what, you know, it's in the nature. I mean, you know, Andrew and I probably disagree a little bit, and you know about about how reformable the EU is and how effective it is as as an organisation. I think she probably won't be held held to account. I mean, and that's part one of the disappointing things. I mean, pick up on a couple of things. You know, and Andrew said about his his piece in Prospect was 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 excellent. I recommend it as well. But I think, and I do agree with you about you know, it's not going to be you know a huge political crisis. I'll draw back. You know, I don't want to over exaggerate that. And I agree with you about the German Greens. I mean, I've been looking at them a little bit recently because they do seem fairly likely to get the chancellorship. They're probably slightly to the right of Boris Johnson's Conservative Party, as far as I can tell, even on environmental issues. Um, never mind everything else so they're not a very extreme party and and probably you know that you know Marine Le Pen isn't going to win the French presidential election I would imagine even if you know even if Macron loses there will be another kind of centre-right type figure probably so it's not going to be a huge political crisis but I do think that it's possible that the vaccine crisis will change the EU and will change its direction in this way. Is that every other crisis and the and the federalists within within the European movement have always been very keen on this that they never let a crisis get away. So they use crises to advance the project as they see it. Um, and they certainly saw that's part of the whole vaccine saga. Is that they saw that at the beginning of it, it was a power grab by the Commission. They thought that they could take control of health policy, which has previously been you know for the member states and wasn't particularly centralised. And as we discovered in the pandemic, as we discovered in this country and seen in other countries, it's hugely powerful. If you control, you know, just look at what this government's been able to get away with, you know, unimaginable stuff because it's a pandemic and we've kind of allowed them to do that. So I think the commission, you know, they saw... COVID-19, they thought we can take control of health policy. And that's going to be a huge step forward, you know, a bit like the euro, uh, a bit like, you know, Schengen in advancing the federal cause. And I think, you know, what's been fascinating is, is that it's, you know, it's just been a catastrophic failure. I think everyone, pretty much everyone agreed. You know, it's going to be a while before Ursula von der Leyen pops up and says, oh, sorry about that. It was, you know, we messed up. But I think most of the member states are starting to see that. And what you might see, which I think will be really interesting, is a bit of an unraveling that the member states will take back control of vaccine procurement and a lot, and that they will resist health policy being centralised. And that's going to be an interesting process. I mean, you know, uh, you know, people like Andrew will always kind of poke fun and sort of say, oh, you know, People are a, you know, a bit more Eurosceptic, you know, always predicting the demise of the European Union. I was careful not to do that. I don't think it's, it's not going to suddenly implode. But things do unravel and, and there's kind of an entropy. They start, instead of moving forward, they start moving backwards. And I think actually one of the interesting things that will happen historically with the European Union will when it starts to move backwards. And actually the euro crisis, I mean, the euro crisis, I think, was also a failure. The single currency was a failure, a bit like health, you know, health policy. We can debate it, but I think it was a mistake. Uh, but they kind of just about held it together. There was, a, there was a nice joke where one of the economists on Twitter when the whole vaccine thing blew up saying, it's a shame the ECB can't print vaccines because then they would get out of the mess because that's the most effective institution within Europe. So if they could, you know, but I think they didn't, they kind of held the line on the euro, which was also a failure. But I think on vaccines, I suspect, and I think that'd be the really interesting long term thing to look at at the summit in the next few weeks, if the member states take back procurement of vaccines and take back health policy. We're already seeing it. We're already seeing, you know, some of the countries are going alone. Hungary and some of the others are saying we're buying our own vaccines, we're buying the Russian vaccines. The Germans have started breaking out in Germany. It's obviously very important, you know, so we're going to buy our own vaccines. We're not leaving this to the Commission. The Commission just doesn't have the capability to deliver on this. It's too important. And you start a kind of unravelling. And I'd just be interested to see, I think it'd be interesting to see where that process goes, where people start saying, actually, you know what? we can reverse some of this centralisation. We can take powers back to the Commission. And that hasn't happened before. And I think that's a big change. 
Well, I, I don't agree with that analysis. Uh, this is an emergency, and all countries had to take emergency measures, totally unexpected emergency measures to deal with uh, an, an immediate crisis. Uh, they reacted in, in different ways. Sometimes they reacted incoherently. I mean, look at what's happened in the United States, the difference between Trump and then uh, Biden. I don't think that the vaccine crisis is going to be long and ongoing. I mean, that could I could be incorrect about that. It could be that one pandemic is followed by another pandemic and all of that. It does look as if this is a wholly exceptional event. And though you can't... Uh, rule out there being, of course, unexpected health crises in the future. A a global pandemic of this kind, of the virulence that we've experienced in the last year, once we have got vaccines in place that are rolled out and updated as they are with flu vaccines to take account of different strains and so on, uh, one would hope and expect that it's business as normal there. So I don't think that you can extrapolate from this into a long-running issue about where the EU goes, or indeed the British state goes, or the American state. I mean, if Matthew and I were discussing, in a spectator context, the curtailment of civil liberties that have taken place in Britain in the last year, and we said, well, on the basis of that, you know, we're now in for the end of Magna Carta and uh, and freedom of expression and rights to assemble and the holding of open and competitive elections because it's not possible with the vaccine and all of that, we would extrapolate in ways that I don't think are, are correct out of the last year. So I, I agree with him that the EU has badly mishandled the vaccine crisis. I agree with him that there could be continuing effects if the EU stays in lockdown longer than we stay in. That will have a big economic effect on them. It will also, the point I was making earlier, it will have an economic effect on us too because the EU is our main uh, export and import market. But I don't at the moment see this as part of a wider uh, dismantling either of the European Union or of the British state or of the world as we know it. I think that's making the mistake of extrapolating from the recent past. But it could be, and it could be, this is the big difference between Matthew and me, it could be that I'm a congenital optimist and he's a congenital pessimist. All I can say is I very much hope my optimism is well-placed and his pessimism less so. Matthew and Andrew, thank you very much for joining. Next. A new Instagram account allows teenage girls to anonymously report accusations of sexual assault and harassment, which are then posted publicly. So, will this stop abuse or ostracise young men? In this week's magazine, Melanie McDonough says it's never been more difficult to be a teenager. And she joins me now together with Julie Bindle, a spectator contributor and feminist campaigner against sexual violence. Melanie, in your piece for the magazine this week, you talk about a new Instagram account called Everyone's Invited. Can you start by explaining what it is to listeners? I'm a bit at sea myself, but um, I gather that it's a forum where girls can complain about the behaviour of boys at specific schools. And so it's um, ordered by school. And so the shame factor is that much greater. So Dulwich has been identified and uh, Latimer Opera has been identified and assorted independent schools. And um, there's a state school in there and um, it, it happens to be the very good one that my son attends. And so I perked up a bit at that point. I sort of registered what was um, being said about it. And um, my daughter was completely appalled by the whole thing, and my son was um, terrifically defensive about it. So I had a little mini culture war uh, in my own home. And what sort of thing are girls posting on it? Well, it's hair-raising. It really is. You've got, at the worst, allegations of rape. And at the other end of the spectrum, we've got girls sharing pictures of themselves, nudes, uh, without any clothes on, and then boys go on to share that with other boys. And then you've got 
the kind of just bad behaviour on the part of the lower school in these schools. That is to say, boys kind of making remarks about how girls look if the school takes in girls at sixth form. So that can be very uncomfortable, and I do remember that from, from my own school days. But the stuff about sort of sexual aggression and the expectations that boys have in respect of various sexual practices is completely new in my experience. And um, it does seem to be a new and quite alarming kind of territory for uh, young people to navigate, I mean, boys and girls. Julie, do you think girls are right to be taking matters into their own hands by posting on Everyone's Invited? Yes, I think I I can completely understand and I'm glad that they've got that outlet and I'm glad that girls and young women can talk to each other about this kind of thing because often what happens is that they're told that they are prudes, that they're moralists, that they're pearl clutchers, that they're anti-sex, that they're man-hating. And in fact, what we know is that girls are desperately trying to retain a sense of boundary and self-respect. When we look at the way that society is saturated in what we used to call hardcore pornography when I was at school in the 70s but what we just call pornography now because there's no such thing as the soft porn the soft porn is on MTV it's on all of the terrestrial channels so when we look at that saturation the messages that boys are getting and girls are getting and this is from the average age of about 10 years old when boys first access porn is that girls are slags sluts whores available for them as pieces of meat as disjointed orifices and that it's we're kind of growing in a way a a whole generation raised on the, the this imagery of misogynistic sociopaths on one extreme end of the scale and on the other end of the scale the boys that feel that they don't want to take part in to collude with this woman-hating sexual free-for-all are then bullied by the boys who say, what's wrong with you, and kick them out of their club. So it's a nightmare, I think, for parents to be able to talk to their kids, to boys and girls, about pornography without humiliating or embarrassing them or, very importantly, shutting down their healthy sexual exploration and sense of self. Melanie, you say in your piece that what seems to have been lost is the gentle art of snogging. So is that is that where you think the line should be drawn in, in schools? Yes, I do. I don't think that, um, that ch- children of that age, and when you're kind of 14, 15, 16, you are in some ways a child. Um, I don't think there should be the expectation that you have full-on sex. I think um, when you're kind of going out with somebody, there should be space for you to be, in some ways, kind of intimate, sort of kissing somebody or a degree of physical intimacy, which doesn't have to go um, to to the um, extent of full-blown sex. And I think that that's been the biggest kind of change in the last generation that um, there is uh, some extraordinary sort of expectation that you engage in sexual practice in very short order. I think it may well be that um, girls' expectations have been skewed as well by the pornography that um, that Julie describes. But it is, as she says, very hard on young people who don't want to go there. If you're actually very shy, I think these kind of expectations can make you more reticent with the other sex and less willing to try even um, the, the mildest kind of overtures. Because on the one hand, you don't want to be 
um, stigmatised as being some sort of Me Too aggressor. And on the other hand, you just don't want to go into the territory that's there online. So I think for quite shy and quite reticent young people who aren't very sure of themselves with the other sex, it's actually a very intimidating kind of environment. And if we just had a kind of space that we used to have where people would go out with each other and wouldn't expect to engage in a sort of sexual practices like you see on Everyone's Invited, uh, it would actually be just less threatening for everybody. Julie, a lot of the schools that are featured are private schools. Do you think there's something in that? Is this an issue of privilege or is it just that those schools are perhaps better well known? No, it's an issue of, of uh, masculinity and it's an issue of patriarchy. And of course, I would say that as a feminist, but as a feminist, for for the past 40 years, I've been campaigning to end male violence towards women and girls. And of course, it can start in boyhood. It's important to say here that there's absolutely nothing natural or innate about the abusive behaviour that we're hearing about on these sites or about the horrendous levels of sexual and domestic abuse of women and girls. Boys are not born programmed to do this and nor are girls programmed to be either good, inherently good, or victims. This is about social construction and it's about the privilege that boys are born with because of patriarchy. And we have to talk about rape when we when we look at, at this issue because what pornography does is it eroticises rape and it makes it into something that it is not. It makes it into something that girls and women enjoy. And Melanie's piece was really interesting. There was much in there that I found myself nodding along to and then some things that I disagreed with. I mean, for example, the whole notion of mixed messages. I think that's a myth. I think that boys know fine well, men know fine well of any age, when they don't have consent, when they don't have enthusiastic participation, when girls are too drunk to consent, which is in law, never mind, you know, morally and ethically, rape. It is absolutely clear that boys will coerce, will push will ignore the needs or whether or not the girl is consenting and will push ahead. And much as we don't like the label of rapist when it's on a very young boy or man, this is something, unfortunately, which is so everyday. And we see rape as something only committed by monsters or in extreme circumstances of a masked marauder jumping out of a bush, a stranger in the dark breaking into a vulnerable woman's home, when in fact it's an everyday occurrence for many young women and girls in consensual relationships with these boys. So this is what we need to do. We need to make sure that girls know that they have the right to say no, but we need to stop believing this nonsense about boys getting mixed messages as though just because a girl acts outrageously, flirtatiously, drinks, takes off her bra in public, whatever, if she isn't consenting to sex, it is rape. Well, um, hang on a bit. I'd kind of say that there is an onus on all of us to behave um, prudently and responsibly. And I just think that the other element of the culture that kind of turns my hair grey, I mean, more than it does anyway, is um, the notion of nudes, that girls take it as read that part of the package when you go out with somebody is to share naked pictures. That, I think, is just wrong. And then there's um, the 
a kind of drinking culture that's um, inherent in some of the uh, social interactions where girls just lose it. They just don't know what they're doing because they're too drunk. I absolutely agree with you that um, drunkenness does not imply consent. I mean, do you remember High Society, that film with um, Grace Kelly and Frank Sinatra? There was um, one element of it where Grace Kelly just passed out and um, after the event she assumed that she'd uh, uh, done something improper and um, Frank Sinatra, I think it was, said there are rules about this kind of thing so even back then, people knew that there were parameters that it's not permissible to go through. But um, I do think that um, there is an onus on all concerned to behave responsibly. And I think that those uh, feminists who sort of talk about reclaiming their sexuality and behaving in a blatantly provocative, sexually provocative way can't actually complain when then you get a sexual response. If you behave in a sexually provocative way and then men re- react sexually, that in a way it's result. So um, I do think that the onus is on both sexes to behave properly, but obviously the greater onus is on boys. Thank you, Melanie, and thank you, Julie. And finally, when India became independent in 1947, violence surged and British families fled. Bridget Keenan spent much of her childhood in India, and in this week's magazine she writes about what it was like to be one of the last children of the Raj. To tell her story, Bridget joins me now, together with Alex von Tunzelman, a historian and author of Indian Summer, The Secret History of the End of an Empire. Bridget, in this week's magazine you write about being one of the last children of the British Raj. How do you remember your childhood? Well, I think my sister put it very cleverly. My, my older sister was in India until she had to come back to boarding school. And she said our childhood in India was in technicolour. And when we came back to England, it went into black and white. And I think that's the best way. Because we came back to England just after the war. Everything was sort of shriveled and rationed. And our relatives didn't know us. We, they thought we were very spoilt because we'd missed the war by being in India. Of course, my father hadn't missed the war at all. But us children, you know, we were sort of living the life of Riley while they were all suffering in England. So we didn't feel that anybody liked us. And we all had Indian accents and we were rather sallow. We felt like aliens. And, and whereabouts in India were you based during your childhood? We were all over the country. Um, because my father had been in what is now Pakistan, but was part of India then. And we, we'd, he was in the Dogra Regiment in India, and he'd travelled all over around India, and then fought in Burma. And our last posting, we'd been to Secunderabad, and then Pune, and then our last posting was from Pune. We were in a transit camp, waiting for a ship to come home in 1948. And uh, we had been home for a very brief visit because my mother wanted to see my brother that she hadn't seen for seven years. So she was desperate to come home. So we'd come home for a quick visit and then we'd gone back to India again. My father was going to stay, stay on after independence, but in the end he didn't. So we came back. Alex, as Bridget said, she was in India for the final days of the British Raj. Can you tell listeners briefly about what the events that led to that point of the of British children having and British families having to return. Oh, crikey, briefly. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's one of the biggest stories in history. I mean, you know, effectively, the British had been in India for a long, 
a very long time. I mean, really since sort of, you know, the end of Elizabeth I's reign and sort of gradually had, you know, that had turned into an empire. It had turned from the East India Company into a government run empire in the mid 19th century. And so, you know, in the early 20th century, really, the sort of independence movement began to rise up and it really took a very long time for all of this to play out. And of course, what that meant is that lots of British families, I think like Bridget's, had been there for generations, a very, very long time indeed. You know, it wasn't that they had just turned up, you know, very shortly before at all. So a lot of them had deep roots. Some of them, of course, had intermarried with Indian families. You know, there were there was huge complexity about this and very different experiences in different places. When the British Empire came to an end in India, you know, when the sort of final partition happened and all of these kind of great complicated events, um, relations actually weren't in a particularly bad state between Britain and India. They were quite positive, actually, at that time, at the the very end period, partly because sort of Mountbatten's last viceroyalty had been quite positive. But of course, then you had the complete disaster of partition and these huge population movements, a great disruption. So... You know, I think there are probably quite a lot of families from what we can say now, like Bridges, that were considering staying on, you know, that really had made their lives there and would have stayed. But of course, then a year of huge disruption of partition and violence made a lot of people reconsider. So, you know, for a child, of course, I mean, Bridges' point of view, so fascinating, would have seen this, you know, without all the politics through completely different eyes. But for the adults, these were very complicated decisions. We knew the fear. We could feel the fear. Uh, my father was with the brigade that was set up to try and keep the peace on the bo- on the new border, and I think it only lasted about a month. And he was utterly horrified. My father was practically destroyed by the things that he saw: the terrible slaughter between both sides of the the border, the, between the Hindus and the Muslims, and that killed his idea of wanting to stay on. So. I think we'd have loved to stay. I mean, we would have loved loved to stay on. And my mother would have... And they had a deep affection for India. They were both born in India and their parents were born in India. My family was half Irish and I think the original person had gone, ironically, a, a, a colonised Irishman had gone to help the British colonise India. I think there's a very fascinating story to be told there. And the other half of my family were French and they'd gone to be silk merchants in Bengal. And somehow all these threads came together. But we had no home in England. So, Bridget, tell us, what what was it like when you arrived in England? It must have felt very different. Well, the first time we arrived, when we came home for the short trip, it was at the end of the European War, but not the Japanese War. So we couldn't mention any dates in telegrams and things about when we were coming. So my father had sent some cryptic message back saying we were arriving three days after Granny's birthday or something. If it fell into the wrong hands, they wouldn't torpedo the ship. So when we got back to Liverpool, there was nobody to meet us because they'd got the message wrong. So then we took the train down to Liverpool Street Station and there was nobody there as well. And then we took a train down from Waterloo to our grandparents' home and there was nobody there either. So it was probably the most disappointing arrival that anybody had ever had. My mother was beside herself. And of course, her son, who she'd come back to see, he was on his way back from Liverpool, having gone to Liverpool on the wrong day with my grandparents. So coming back in that case was was awful. But coming back when we finally came back in 1948 was also horrible because of this 
we just didn't feel we belonged. And people used to laugh at us because of our, what was called then a chi-chi accent and um, imitate us. And uh, it took a long time to settle, settle in. But I think the great thing that my uh, childhood in India was that I didn't have a fixed starting point in life. I was outside caste and sort of in outside class in a way. And the people that I loved best when I was very small were all brown people. So it gave me a sort of incredibly wide horizon in life. I, I think if I'd been born in Sunbury and educated in Sunbury and never gone anywhere else, I wouldn't have had this kind of world ahead of me that I had no um, convictions or, or habits in. I, the, the world was open to me. So I think that was the bigger advantage for me. Alex, can you explain a little bit to listeners how the Raj is now seen in India? Because obviously there's quite a lot of nostalgia by families who you know grew up in the Raj, but how is it viewed by Indians in India? I mean, this is an obvious point to make in a sense, but India is a massive place and extremely diverse. And, you know, when you're thinking about talking about India, you're talking about a country that's really the size of Europe and a similar diversity of language and certainly ideas. So if you travel around India today, you'll meet people with extremely divergent and different opinions on the Raj. You absolutely will meet people who are nostalgic about it. Um, You will also meet people who are highly critical, um, still very angry. You'll meet a whole interesting range of experiences and I can recommend doing it because it's certainly very, very interesting, never dull. But I mean, you know, I think generally it's part of history that's sort of been absorbed in an interesting and complicated way. Modern India is, you know, currently under a government which has quite a strong streak of Hindu nationalism. So the big antagonist for them isn't really the Raj or the kind of imperial period, but they're much more sort of focused on actually kind of antipathy towards Muslims, towards, you know, even historically towards kind of Akbar's period, the Mughal period. So, you know, in a sense, the Raj kind of gets away with it a bit in the kind of current political debate. So, it's complicated. It's really complicated and really interesting. Uh, but I think certainly from what I've heard from people like Bridget, when they go back now, they receive an incredibly warm welcome and lots of people are really, really interested to hear about their experiences. Bridget, have you been back much since your family left India in 1948? Well, strangely enough, I never intended to go back, but I find myself going back almost every year. It has a real pull on me. I just, It's like a drug. I just want to go back. And when I go back, I feel completely at home, as if it, that is still my home. Of course, the, the country has changed a million percent since I was there, uh, for all the reasons Alex says. But I still, the still underneath it all, even just the smell, it just reminds me of my childhood, and I love going back. And I'm very lucky I have friends in Jaipur. And then there's the Literature Festival in Jaipur. I quite often go for that. I love going back. Bridget and Alex, thank you so much for joining. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to the magazine to read everything we've talked about. You can get 12 issues in print and online for just £12, and we'll throw in a free bottle of Spectator Gin worth £30, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash gin. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week.